views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Can we talk for a sec about rules of thumb? The Cambridge English Dictionary defines a rule of thumb as a practical and approximate way of doing something. And then it gives an example. A good rule of thumb is that a portion of rice is two handfuls. Hmm, helpful. The Oxford English Dictionary approaches it differently. A rule of thumb, it says, is a broadly accurate guide or principle based on experience rather than theory. Its example, about 10 hours will be needed to analyze each hour of recorded data. Okay. Go further down the rabbit hole and what you find is that there are a lot a lot of rules of thumb where money is concerned. Some of them are helpful. You should have three to six months worth of fixed expenses in your emergency cushion. Pay off your highest interest rate credit cards first. Save at least 15% of whatever you make. These are helpful because at least for the period of time that we're living in right now, They happen to work, but there are other rules of thumb that no longer apply. Rules of thumb that we might say are expired. Think of the rules of etiquette that you were raised with. Today, men are no longer expected to stand up when women enter the room. You no longer have a year to send a wedding gift. Men don't have to pay on first dates and If you happen to put your elbows on the table, well, it's not the Shonda, which happens to be Yiddish for shame, that my grandparents would have said it was. And in finances, rules of thumb are not necessarily the gold standard we thought they were either. The rule of thumb that you're likely to spend only 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement income in retirement Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner Isabel Barrow, who will be with me in this show today. She and I were just talking about how not true this typically is. Well, today we are digging into what for many years was considered to be the retirement rule of thumb, the 4% rule. And it put out into the universe that if you withdrew no more than 4% of your retirement portfolio each year, your retirement stash should last 30 years. If you retired at 60, it should take you till 90. If you retired at 65, 95. It was a very nice piece of reassurance. And then last year, Morningstar issued a report essentially saying, not so fast. And a whole generation of retirement savers said, what? Well, 
Today, we are going to dig into the 4% rule. Is it still a rule? Is it still 4%? And how do you have to approach your money if you want to make sure that it lasts as long as you do? I'm Jean Chatsky, and you're listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. And joining me is Christine Benz, who I know is a familiar name to many of you. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. She's the author of 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances, and the Morningstar Guide to Mutual Funds, Five Star Strategies for Success. Hey, Christine, welcome. Hi, Jean. So good to see you. So good to see you always. So we wanted to dig into the 4% rule. I really have been following your reports on this the past couple of years, and it fell to 3% and change. Now it's back up to 3.8%. Can we back it up and just talk about why this is a rule to begin with and how we should be approaching it today before we even get to the number? Sure. This is one of the hardest problems in financial planning, figuring out how much you can safely take out of your portfolio in retirement. And the reason it's hard is because we don't know how long we'll live. We don't know how the market will perform, how stocks and bonds will perform over our time horizon. We don't know what inflation will be like. So it's very hard to know how much you can safely spend. So to help address that question, financial planner Bill Bangin probably 20 some years ago, did some research where he was looking at the worst case scenario for retirees. If they hit the worst market environment in history, what would have been the most that they could have taken out as a starting withdrawal? And then inflation adjusted that dollar amount thereafter without running out of funds. And he hit on this 4% guideline, which we do think is kind of a useful heuristic when thinking about the adequacy of your retirement reserves. But in our research, we attempted to take a forward-looking view incorporating where bond yields are currently, incorporating where stock prices are currently, And you mentioned, Jean, when we looked at this in 2021, we thought investors should take 4% down. If they're Mm -hmm. taking a starting withdrawal, that they should probably begin in the low 3% range. Thanks to a really bad market environment in 2022, which sent bond yields up and stock prices down, we actually think investors who are embarking on retirement today can safely take close to 4% if they want to have a 90% chance of their funds lasting over a 30-year time horizon. There's a a big difference between 3.3% and 4%. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot when you're thinking in terms of single dollars, but when you're thinking in terms of a whole portfolio, it's pretty significant. If you're somebody who's entering into retirement, do you need to reevaluate what the initial withdrawal rate should be every year? Or do we think 4% was a rule for a really long time? 2022 may have been a little bit of a an outlier. We can safely stick with closer to 4%. It's a really important point. I do think investors should check up on their spending annually. 
A big factor in the mix is that retiree spending changes, just like it's the case in any other household where retirees may have higher spending years, where maybe they want to take the family on a cruise, or maybe they have big health care bills on the unhappy side of the ledger. So retirees should take a look at their spending annually. And ideally, if they can pay a little bit of attention to what's going on in the portfolio balance, that will help improve the portfolio's odds of lasting over a long time horizon. Because if you can, you should take a little bit less in a down market year when your portfolio has incurred losses. But the trade-off is, is if you're willing to be flexible, you can take a little bit more in those very good years. So we had a tremendous stretch from 2019 through 2021 where stocks performed really, really well. Retirees who were willing to be flexible during those periods could have given themselves a little bit of an adjustment upward to account for the fact that their performance, their portfolio performance was really good. Sadly, for a big chunk of that time, those people had nowhere to go. Right. I mean, you weren't you weren't really leaving your house. You weren't traveling. You weren't going on vacation. But I I understand what you're saying. And I've seen research. Chase has done some really interesting research where they've looked at the actual spend of retirees based on the credit card data that they have so much access to. And they found that retirees have this ability to be resilient to exhibit the sort of resilience that you're talking about. And during years when the markets are down and their portfolios are down, take one less vacation or reduce their spend in some other ways. I was always a little worried that people thought that the 4% was a number that they hit upon in the first year of retirement and that it didn't change for 30 years when, in fact, it's a moving target. Exactly. I I think sometimes people get hung up on this initial withdrawal, but the fact is you can and should course correct as your retirement unfolds, as your situation unfolds. One interesting dimension of this is that when we look at retiree spending over a retirement time horizon, we know that spending tends to trend down throughout the retirement time period. And some research was done by my former colleague, David Blanchett, who's now at PGM, where he looked at the trajectory of retiree spending and found that in kind of those middle to late retirement years, retirees were spending substantially less than they were early in their retirements in sort of those pent up demand go-go years when people are feeling good. They have a lot of travel plans oftentimes. Those are the high spending years of retirement, but then spending tends to trend down in sort of the mid-70s, early 80s period, and then sometimes goes up a little bit later in in life, especially if there are some unfunded long-term care expenses that enter the picture. So factoring in how you expect your own spending to change is an important dimension of this. If you're willing to spend a little bit less as you get older or assume that you will spend less, that means that you can spend more earlier on in your retirement. Does this change the way that we need to think about building these portfolios in the first place? Well, it does. I think it's important to think about 
the trajectory of spending. It's also important to think about the ultimate intent of the funds. So I would say retirees tend to fall in one of two camps where they're sort of last breath, last dollar retirees, (laughs) where their idea is, I want to spend it all and I want to enjoy the fruits of my labors. And this is often appropriate, especially where uh, perhaps a couple doesn't have children, where the goal is really to optimize their own spending. Other retirees might say, no, it's super important for me to leave money for my heirs or for charity, in which case the structure of the portfolio might look a little different. The first portfolio for the consume it all retirees would tend to be a little bit more conservative to support their own funding needs. Whereas if a bequest is important, you arguably want to have the portfolio look a little bit more aggressive to support those bequests later in life. As you mentioned, we've just come through 2022, a year when both stocks and bonds got creamed at the same exact time, which has not typically happened. But does that change the standard guidance about putting together portfolios? And are there other asset categories that we should be thinking about adding to our portfolios or taking away? It's a big question, Jean. I've been hearing a lot about whether the old 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio is dead. And it's true. Stocks and bonds didn't work last year together, which runs counter to their historical pattern, where historically in the decades prior to 2022, stocks and bonds had a nice kind of non-correlated trajectory where especially very high quality bonds like treasury bonds often moved up when stocks had a problem period. So that the great financial crisis from 2007 through 2009 was a great example. I think that the fact that the 60-40 or a balanced portfolio didn't work last year, I shouldn't call the whole system into question, but I do think it underscores the importance of Having liquid reserves set aside, if you're a retired person, your stocks and bonds may in fact decline in tandem. So it makes sense to hold cash reserves. I like the idea of holding a couple of years worth of portfolio withdrawals, planned portfolio withdrawals in cash. And that way you're not risking having to invade the stock or bond portion of your portfolio when they're down in the dumps as they were last year. There's sometimes confusion between that cash reserve and an emergency fund. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction? Right. Everyone needs an emergency fund, younger workers who are still accumulating assets for retirement. And I would urge people to do their homework about what is the right size of that liquid reserve portfolio, that emergency fund. But I think three to six months is kind of the standard starting point, and it's a decent one. So three to six months worth of portfolio withdrawals. If you're retired, you probably don't need an emergency fund, but I like the idea of having these liquid reserves set aside to meet what you know will be your ongoing cash flow demands from your portfolio. So look at what you're expecting to get from Social Security, if you have a pension, if you're lucky enough to have a pension, and then uh, 
take your total expenses, subtract those non-portfolio income sources out, and then come up with one to two years worth of whatever is left over to arrive at how much to hold in liquid reserves as part of your retirement portfolio on an ongoing basis. I, I know that you're a big believer in the idea of using buckets to construct portfolios, especially retirement portfolios. Can you explain what this means and and what it might look like for a moderate investor or a conservative investor? Sure. I am a big evangelist of this bucket strategy. I was originally exposed to it from a financial planner who I know, Harold Ovensky, who told me that he was using this bucket strategy with his clients. And the basic idea is that you are maintaining ongoing cash reserves as part of your portfolio. So in the case of his clients, he said that he just kind of bolted on this cash bucket or bucket number one, if you will, alongside the long-term balanced portfolio that he was running for them. And his point to me, which really resonated, and I've been subsequently hearing from retirees who use this bucket strategy, is that knowing that they had these liquid reserves set aside, knowing that they could still go out to dinner on Saturday night, even when the market was down, that retirees could continue with their plan spending, gave them the ability to keep peace with their long-term portfolio, which would inevitably experience fluctuations. And so I think a very basic setup would be you're using your planned annual portfolio withdrawals to drive how much to drop into each of these buckets. So I like to think about a three-bucket setup where I have maybe two years worth of planned portfolio withdrawals and very liquid reserves, higher yield available now, but this is not a high returning portion of the portfolio. But then with the rest of this, the portfolio, I'm just kind of stepping out on the risk spectrum. So I might hold another eight years worth of portfolio withdrawals in high quality bonds. Maybe I would include a little bit of dividend paying stock exposure or balanced fund exposure in that portion of the portfolio. So with that bucket one and bucket two, I've kind of built a 10-year runway of cash flows. And then with the long-term piece of the portfolio, bucket three, I would uh, put money for years 11 and beyond of my retirement there. So from a practical standpoint, for people just embarking on retirement, they've got that 10-year runway in cash and bonds and maybe some high-quality dividend-paying stocks. And then the bulk of their portfolio is the growth engine of the portfolio. It's a globally diversified stock portfolio. I think that's a very plain vanilla way to approach it. And it's intuitive. I think it takes the kind of black boxy nature of setting an asset allocation and makes it really practical because you're using your anticipated cash flows to drive how to structure it. Yeah, it's a little bit blood pressure reducing. It's a very calming way to think about it, I, I think. It sort of puts your mind at ease because it's definitive and yet gives you the wiggle room to do what you need to do should the markets have another year like last year. Right. The, the last thing we want is for people to upend their plans in a period of market volatility. We want them to be able to stick with whatever asset allocation that they've set up for themselves. Amazing. Christine Benz, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Jean. It's always great to see you. You too. 
We have to take a quick break, but when we get back, Isabel Barrow, a wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines, will join us to talk about 2023, the 60-40 portfolio, the 4% rule, and so much more. I'm Jean Chatsky. You're listening to Everyday Wealth. Stay with us. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. And we are back on Everyday Wealth. Isabel Barrow from Edelman Financial Engines joins me in the studio. Hey, Isabel. Hey, Jean. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Great jacket, by the way. Those of you who can't see Isabel, you should check her out on social media. She's wearing a very beautiful purple jacket. Love it. So Christine gave us a lot to dig into, but let's start with this 60-40 portfolio that may or may not be dead What do you think? Well, it's been in the news a lot, certainly. Um, And I think that there are some reasons why people are feeling that way, because 2022 was really a very unique year where we saw just everything very correlated. And that's so uncommon. Um, It's just such an outlier to see that. So I think people were pretty taken aback to say, you know, I constructed a portfolio, I used a well-diversified approach, and it didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to. But, you know, I think we have to kind of remember that that's one year out of many, many, many years where we have seen it actually work out a lot better. Right. I mean, the 60-40 portfolio just historically comes out of modern portfolio theory. It was a field that was pioneered by a guy named Harry Markowitz, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And the whole idea behind this 60-40 balance that pension funds have adhered to for decades is that you can maximize the returns of the portfolio and minimize risk at the same time. And it worked, and it worked, and it worked, and it worked, and then it didn't. Right. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, the equity piece, right, the 60 piece that is supposed to be your stock market exposure, that's what you expect to drive your returns. And then the 40 piece, which is your bond market, you know, your fixed income, that's really meant to help smooth out volatility. So when the stock market goes down, you've got something that is going up because over the long term, equities and bonds are typically inversely correlated. And we've seen also called, you know, negatively correlated and stocks will typically outperform bonds over the long term. And for example, a 60-40 portfolio, if we look at the, the decade of 
2011 through 2021, so preceding, immediately preceding 2022, the classic 60-40 portfolio had more than 11% average annual return. So while past performance doesn't guarantee future results, obviously, when you look at this longer period of time, there are going to be periods of time where stocks and bonds are maybe more correlated than inverse. But typically, again, if we stretch out our lens to the longer term, we can see that that last year, 2022, really was an outlier in that everything was kind of moving down together. And that's what created this idea that, hey, diversification doesn't work anymore. When you point out that period from 2011 to 2021, the first thing that flashes in my head is bull market. Right. I mean, with the exception of 2020, where the market went down really fast and then back up really fast because of the pandemic, this was pretty much a bull market. What happens with a 60-40 portfolio typically in bear markets? Well, typically, again, in bear markets, the reason why you have the 40, the bond exposure, is because that's what what's going to help you. So in theory, if the stock market is down 20% in a bear market, if you have that 40% in bonds that's up, depending on what it's up, you're not going to lose that 20%. So maybe you're down 15%. So it's a little bit easier for you to recover rather than having taken all of the losses on the chin, as you would have if you were 100% exposed to the equity markets. 2022, again, we didn't see that. It didn't help us out like it would have, at least historically speaking. When we talk to people about how much risk they should take with their investments, We talk about things like risk tolerance, and we often talk about how they're tied to your age, that when you're in your 20s or your 30s, and you've got a huge amount of runway, right, for the markets to do all of the roller coastering that they want, knowing that historically they tend to go up over time, you can take more risk as you close in on retirement or even on any goal you want to take less risk because if the market has a bad year right before you need that money, you don't want to lose it. So can you talk about the 60-40 math over the course of the lifespan of an investor? So 60-40 is just kind of this arbitrarily picked formula, right? Where we say maybe somebody who's living in retirement is in a 60-40 portfolio. But realistically, How aggressive or conservative you are is not just a function of your age, but it's a function of, I mean, it is a function of your age. Certainly, that's one component of it in theory because your age is relative to when you're going to be retiring and how long you have to live. So as we kind of think about portfolio construction and what's the most appropriate asset allocation, it is thinking about how long until you're going to need the money. So I think that's an important differentiation. It's not just the day you retire, but the day you retire, is that the day you also need to start drawing off of your portfolio? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe Maybe not. not. If you've got the two years of cash that Christine was talking about, particularly, maybe not, if you you don't have to. And you have just retired into a bear market, and maybe it's a good time to be drawing off of that cash. Or maybe you're going to be downsizing your house, and you're going to get a big lump sum from selling your home, and you're going to live off of that for a while until you hit 73 and you have a required minimum distribution. So again, it's it's a function of thinking about the time frame until you're going to need the money, but then also 
how long are you going to have to make that money last after you start tapping into it? In Christine's study, you know, they're looking at 4% and how long it lasted. Did it last 30 years? So if you're thinking about, you know, your 60-40 portfolio, you're thinking about, am I going to be using that from the time I'm let's say 70 to 100. So it's it's a long period of time for you to kind of level out the peaks and valleys of the portfolio's volatility. So, so yes, certainly the younger you are, the more aggressive you can afford to be because you have more time to recover before you're going to start tapping into that portfolio. So it's 60, just because it's 60-40, that doesn't mean that it's 60-40 is right for everyone. It's just sort of an arbitrary allocation that we've come up with to give an example of returns. To get further into the nitty gritty, when we talk about stocks and bonds, there are a lot of different stocks and bonds, right? Like in the simplest case, stocks could be an S&P 500 index fund. Bonds could be treasuries. I know in the work that you do every day, it's more complicated than that. How do you fill up the buckets? Yeah, I mean, to your point, you could have a 60-40 portfolio, but if your 60 is in one or two individual stocks and your 40 is in one bond, that's really not doing what it's supposed to do in terms of having a diversified mix. So it's thinking about those what are typically inversely correlated asset classes, like stocks and bonds, but within that, getting even deeper where you're not just looking at the S&P 500, let's say the the 500 biggest U.S. companies, but also thinking about, well, what about all of the other companies that comprise the U.S. market? So really thinking about the smaller smaller companies that might be growing faster, the mid-sized companies that still have some room to grow. And within your fixed income portfolio, you're thinking about not just the government bonds. I mean, that should probably be the biggest piece of your of your portfolio, but also high-grade corporate bonds. Or what about sovereign debt? You know, what about international bonds? Thinking about also international exposure. I mean, mm-hmm. should you have all of your money in the US? So maybe having some exposure to overseas or emerging markets. And then also, what about other asset classes that might be sort of non-correlated or less correlated to stocks and bonds, like real estate real or estate, natural right? resources? Absolutely. So all things that you need to consider, whether or not they may play a role in the overall diversification of your portfolio and what type of risk and return metric you're using to gauge how much of each one to have. You know, all investing, whatever it is, comes with risk. I mean, if it didn't, we would just put all of our money in the stock market and say, we're just going to, you know, get maximum reward all of the time. But the reality is, is that stocks carry risk. So do bonds. So does cash. You know, you stick all your money in the bank in cash. And guess what? You know, you're making, what What were you quoting? 0.22%. You're losing money right. after in, after inflation and taxes. Right. Everything carries with it risk. But but it's not just the inflation and taxes and everything else of sitting, sitting the money in the bank. It's also, what is your opportunity cost? Right. What, what would that money have been? doing for you otherwise. So in reality, everything carries with it risk, even your real estate, you know? So it's a matter of really thinking about how do we balance out those risks? How do we make sure that I'm not taking too much risk in any one area? And I'm just kind of spreading out my risks into many different baskets. Hopefully, a lot of them are going to perform in a different way, and maybe one's doing better and the other one's doing better. And, you know, and over time, it's all going to balance out. That's sort of the whole goal and purpose of diversification is that we know everything has risk. It's just usually they have different risks at different times. My husband has an aunt who listens to this show, but I won't name her. She has 
Coca-Cola stock. And she's had it for a really long time. I think she got it from one of her parents. It's special to her. In her family, she says, we own Coca-Cola stock. And there are a lot of people, I think, who are sitting on positions of individual stocks. Maybe they work for the company, but that occupy an outsized place in their portfolio. How does that mess with things? And how should you approach these outliers? Well, I think it is, it's, it's, you're right, it's really common for people to have an attachment emotionally to a stock that they have had for a long time or that they came to through inheritance or maybe it was through a former employer. I mean, I won't say the stock that it was, but um, in 2008 era, I remember a client that had um, had an inheritance of a bank stock that had a very high dividend. And she was living on that dividend, and that was what paid her entire income for the year. Like, it was a good amount of stock, and the dividend was what she relied on. Well, then, as we go into the financial crisis, and her bank stock is way down in value, and all of a sudden, that company is now cutting their dividend mm-hmm. and cut it and cut it and cut it and cut it. And so now she's in a position where she has to, she still needs the income to live and pay her mortgage and, and pay for food and everything else that goes along with living. But now she doesn't have that dividend to pay. So what does she have to do? Now she has to tap into the stock itself and sell and then, redu- you know, and it's already down in value and the market's down and we're in that bear market in 2008. So now she's also reducing what In the future, even if the stock recovers and the dividend goes back up, she has fewer shares now because she's had to sell. So now her income is now likely to be permanently reduced. And it just kind of created so many other problems and an absolute stress that she didn't need. But it is it is pretty common for people to stay really attached to, the, to that stock or, or that bond for one reason or another. What is the appropriate amount to hold if you work for a company? And, and there are a lot of companies where when you're an employee, they match in your 401k in company stock. It's really hard not to have a a position that's probably larger than it should be. What are the outer limits? Rule of thumb is around 5%. So you should have no more than about 5% of your overall investments in one company stock. And I know that is hard to do. I would say at maximum, try to keep it below 10, but ideally it should be at 5% or less. And I mean, think about it this way. You've already got your entire career tied into that company. You know, you're getting your income from them. You're getting your health care from them. You know, do you really want to also have all of your investment tied up in that one company? Because what if that company ends up Enron? Yeah, definitely. As we start to wrap up this conversation, I'm wondering if you're doing anything different. I'm wondering as we come out of the year that we hope not to repeat, the year that we shall not say its name, right? It's the Voldemort of years. As we come out of 2022, do you change the way that you work with people? Well, I think if anything, it has, you know, and, and Christine talked about this, it has really underlined that need for cash reserve for those living in retirement. So if you didn't believe me before, you believe me now. Because 
you know, it was a circumstance or it was a year in which it may have been better for you to go ahead and just live off of that cash reserve versus drawing off of your portfolio while it's down in this very unique environment where everything is down. So I think it's really underlined, again, that need for cash reserve. But in general, in a well-diversified portfolio, your portfolio should be built strategically based on your individual circumstances. And that should be something that can last over the longer term. You know, our our approach at, at Edelman Financial Engines is based on Nobel Prize winning research of our co-founder, uh, Dr. William F. Sharp. And each month, we model more than 38,000 securities and we build portfolios that are diversified a- across 17 different asset classes. So it allows us to analyze thousands of of possible security combinations and help to build a customized strategy for each of our clients that will take into account their their time horizon, their individual goals, their preferences for risk. So just because, again, we have one year where not a lot worked, it doesn't mean that we have to throw out the entire approach and try to reinvent the wheel because ultimately there will be some balance. Things will in the future very likely get back to normal. And, you know, the approach that we've used for decades will be the approach that we continue to use going forward. We will be checking in on that. Thank you so much, Isabel. We are out of time, but I really appreciate you hashing this out with me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you've got a question or a topic that you'd like us to talk about on the air, we would love to have you on this podcast. Just visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. Together with an EFA wealth planner like Isabel, we can talk through solutions that would be personal to you. I want to say a big thank you as well to Christine Benz from Morningstar for taking a few minutes out of her day to spend with us on this show because we're committed that this show is a place that helps people, helps you grow and protect your wealth. We will continue to sit at the intersection of life and money and focus on the moments that matter most for your personal economy. So I hope that you'll be sure to subscribe to Everyday Wealth wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And if you're new to podcasting and you want to check out our past episodes, just visit everydaywealth.com. All of our episodes are available there. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.